Hey, welcome to night school. It's time for the next chapter. You knew there'd be another chapter. You knew that wasn't the last chapter. And this one's going to be about, you know, just, just like people are preoccupied with identity and representation when it comes to storytelling, when it comes to entertainment, we can see that it doesn't end there. We can see where people are preoccupied with this I would, I would say spiritually, but it doesn't seem that spiritual to me. It's about as material as you can get. And the best example of this is the whole debate of like, was Jesus black? Is he white? You know, white people want Jesus to be white. Black people want Jesus to be black. I mean, not, not everybody cares. But we do see this discussion come up. They want to feel represent. They want Jesus to represent them. It's not enough that the story of Jesus is compelling. It's that we want Jesus to look like us. His story doesn't mean as much to us. His teachings don't mean as much to us if Jesus doesn't look like us. You know, that's the idea. And then we have the other side of that, which is, you know, the more secular atheist sort of person who's like, yeah, well, Jesus was actually an Arab. We've come up with a... a uh, uh, we, we, we've created a computer-generated image of what we think Jesus would have looked like based on the region he came from. And usually that's just done, to, you know, you often hear people reference that just to kind of like be like, I'm going to put racist white Republicans in their place by showing them that Jesus would have looked like the Muslims they hate. There's always an ulterior motive to it. You don't usually hear it come up in you don't usually you don't usually hear it come up in some anthropological way. There's usually some motive behind why people want Jesus to look a certain way. And I mean you can see that you know there's a preoccupation with that. I mean cuz depicting Jesus as blonde hair, blue-eyed is obviously a form of you know wanting the Wanting a, I mean, it's no different really than wanting an actor to be the same race as you. Like casting a, a black actor as a historical character who was white to appeal to a certain audience is, of course, no different than Christians wanting Jesus to be blonde hair, blue eyed, because they feel that represents the, them better. They're more comfortable with that. They can relate to that better. It's not a fundamentally different idea. But just the art, you shouldn't be participating in that argument at all. It's such a strange thing to be preoccupied with. And uh, usually there's an ulterior motive to it. And that includes people who aren't Christian, who it's very important for them to, to show you that Jesus would have looked like an Arab. And then there's people who counter that where they're like, well, the specific tribe... Jesus was a part of is actually fair-skinned for that part of the world, but you end up in this anthropological argument, and it's all material-based. It's all based on the idea that Jesus's material representation is the most important thing, or that it's important enough to argue over, that you want him to be a certain way. Because every person involved, whether it's people who want Jesus to be black, white, more distinctly Middle Eastern, everyone who's making that argument wants him to be a certain way. And that's such a distraction.
But it's not just Jesus, because the idea is, oh, Jesus was a man, therefore we need to imagine him as a man. You can see this applies to God just as much. The idea, it was God a man or a woman? Well, we don't know that God was a man. I think God was a woman. I like the idea of God being a woman. I like the idea of God being a woman. You know, We can see where that's a part of that conversation, too. Even the idea of God is part of this argument, which is what it is. And uh, the fact that even the... Um, how to, how to even describe God? Let's just say God. The fact that even God is subject to this debate. Even God is subject to people wanting him, her, it to materially represent the thing they want, the thing they identify with. Tells you that it knows no end. You know, I was saying in the last episode, there's no breaks built into that discussion. Like when you get into the idea of like, we need everybody to feel represented. There's no breaks on that. And proof of that to me is the fact that even God is subject to that argument, to that debate, to that analysis. And a lot of that comes from the idea that like, oh, God created man in his image. That must mean he's a man. But people have a very material view of that statement. People have a very material view of what that means. Christians included, Christians especially. Where it's like, they, have, they, they interpret that in the most material possible way, which is that if God created man in his image, he created him as a man. Well, we know God is far beyond a man. Whether you believe in God or not, you would agree that what God represents is far beyond simple manhood. And I think you can interpret that idea of God creating man in his image as God also created man as something more than just material man. There is something incomprehensible about God. There's something whole. There's something total. People who believe in God see God in everything. But they also know God exists in a way that we can't see, that's incomprehensible to us as human beings living our lives. So when I, when I hear something like God created man in his, in his image, I think of that more as, well, there's something also incomprehensible about us. There's something about us that isn't just our material body and our material existence, but our spiritual essence is also part of that wholeness that's part of that totality. So why get hung up on the material? I don't exclude the idea of God being a man from my definition of God. Because we relate to things by personifying them. I talked about this a while back where, you know, we personify God because we personify everything. We put faces on things 
If something doesn't have a face, we don't think of it as a character. Like, think about a fantasy story where there's a, a tr- like, trees are obviously alive. Trees are living in real life. We don't really think of them that way. We know it. Intellectually, intellectually, we know that trees are living. But we don't think of them the same way we think of animals. We think of trees as objects. And even in a story where, let's say you have a magical tree in a story. And it does things that a tree wouldn't do. Let's say it can even move. Let's say it can even uproot itself and move. Like in Lord of the Rings, the the forest that moves. You still don't think of it as a character. But you know what? Put a face on that tree, and it's like, oh, the trees... You suddenly start thinking of it as a character. All you have to do is put a face on a tree, a cartoon face. And you start to think of that tree as something relatable. And we do that with everything. We put faces on things. People put googly eyes on an object... And they see it very differently. Even if it's a joke, they see it differently. They start saying, oh, he's cute. Oh, that's funny. Uh, It becomes relatable. And you can see that with cartoons, too. Where the more human-like something is, the more it appeals to us. The more we relate to it in some way. The more it entertains us, for that matter. You know, cartoons don't just depict animals in their natural state. They anthropomorphize them. Every cartoon ever, pretty much. I mean, I'm trying to think of a successful cartoon that just depicts basically a documentary, an animal documentary with cartoon animals, and you don't see that. I'm sure it exists, but what you see is animals acting like humans. You know, Bugs Bunny would not have been as popular. We probably wouldn't even know who Bugs Bunny is if Bugs Bunny was just a rabbit hanging out in the field. But because Bugs Bunny acts like a man, he's iconic. So we have this need to anthropomorphize. We have this need to personify And then once we do that, we want it also to represent us further by being a man, a woman, white, black. And so we do that with God, too. Where it's like we better understand the idea of God if we imagine God as a human. Even though it's built into that idea that God isn't a human. We still need to imagine him as a human. And uh, that isn't enough, though. Some people think, well, I don't like the idea that it's a man. I, I think it's a she. Thank goddess. Thank goddess. So it ends up, you end up in this material debate. And on one hand, I I don't think somebody should be, I think it's silly to be hung up, so hung up on the idea of God that you feel the need to say, well, what if it was a woman? I think it's a woman, but it's equally silly to be defensive about that. 
just like it's equally silly to be like, well, I think God is, or I think Jesus is black. But then you shouldn't be defensive about somebody wanting Jesus to be black. You don't want to play that game at all. That's such a distraction. And people don't like the fact that there's something incomprehensible in all this. Like, we want to comprehend it. But I think a better way of relating to the idea that man represents God, that God created man in his image, and you don't have to be a Christian or believe in God. I'm not a Christian. But you don't have to believe in that exact spiritual framework to believe that there is something incomprehensible in us as human beings. Obviously, there is. Obviously, we don't understand everything that makes us what we are, that makes the world what it is. There are things that we will never be able to measure. There are things that we will never be able to describe, let alone explain. But we want to describe, we want to explain. And it just shows you that even in a religious, spiritual context, we are so hung up on material representation. Not that that stuff's totally meaningless and unimportant. I mean, the material world is what we know. But to think that it deserves debate and argument, this constant navigation and negotiation is just such a distraction to me. Because I think, honestly, one of the keys to life is becoming comfortable with the incomprehensible. And understanding that we won't always find a rationale for something. And this plays into the human need. This is another theme lately on here, but the human need to find conspiracy. Not just in conspiracy theories, not in these big, you know, overarching events, political, governmental. But we also search for conspiracy in our own lives. You know, what got me thinking about this lately was eBay. Who knew you'd be talking about e-commerce? We should start calling you, we should start calling you e-commerce, Eric Commerce. You you just can't shut up about e-commerce, e-commerce. Eric Commerce. But no, what got me thinking about this was eBay, because, you know, I think I mentioned recently that, you know, it was all, you know, I've been selling a lot of my mom's old things, some of my things I don't need on eBay over the last few months, and it's been smooth sailing. You know, in years past, I've had people not pay me and things like that, but it's been smooth sailing. And then in the same week, it's been like pulling teeth to get people to pay. I've had a few people just straight up not pay me. And other people, even beyond that, just people aren't paying quickly. So it's like some people aren't paying at all and other people are taking their sweet time. It must That time must be sweet. I hope it's sweet time. I hope that time is sweet to them. But I'm just like, huh, you know, it's like I want to find a rationale for that. I'm like, why in the same week... Did several people decide not to pay me after three months of everybody paying me fine? Everybody paying me on time and fine, like what we call fine and on time. It's what we call fine and on time. 
But, you know, I'm just like, I'm trying to find a rationale for it, but there isn't anything. But it tells you something that I'm trying to find a rationale for it. The fact that several people coincidentally not paying me causes me to look for a rationale. Like, I had to think, like, did something change about my account? Is something broken? But there have been a few other people who have paid me. I know nothing is broken with the payment system. I know that there's nothing wrong with the notification system. I know nothing has changed about my account that's preventing people from paying, but yet I, my mind went there. And, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of an out there person, so my mind did go to, oh, maybe it's just a cosmic roadblock. It's just a cosmic roadblock throwing a few speed bumps, a few minor speed bumps just to kind of test me. My mind goes there with it. But it could be nothing. Could there could be no maybe there's not even a cosmic roadblock. It just so happens that right now just a few a few irresponsible people happen to buy things from me at the same time. But we search for that rationale. I mean I was talking the other day about those days where you just hit nothing but red lights, and by the time you hit the fourth red light in a row, you're just like, What is going on? But just like eBay, like eBay, you know, there's no explanation. There's no rationale. There's no reason why you hit a bunch of red lights. And it also happens when, when people seem off. You know, there are days where you go out and you're running errands. And I mean, the, the other day I went to go to the post office. And as I was trying to pull into the parking lot, there was a car trying to exit through the entrance. So they were blocking the entrance so I couldn't pull in. And then I, I finally got into the parking lot. And then there was a car driving the wrong way in the parking lot. And then I went to go walk in the post office and there was somebody leaving another store and they were like walking diagonally. And I was just walking straight on the sidewalk like you should. But somebody was leaving a store and they were walking diagonally. And, I, you know, I don't keep a journal of all this stuff. But it was just one of those days where like somebody's walking diagonally. So... If they kept going, they would run straight into me. It was as if they were trying to run into me. And in those moments, you're like, everybody's off. You know, something's wrong with people. Three people in a row, three human beings in a row in the same, you know, uh, in the same strip mall are out of alignment. And it's inconveniencing me. But my mind always goes like, am I the one who's off? Am I, am I somehow seeing things wrong? Am I the one who's off today? Did I do something? Was I driving wrong? And I just, I looked at those other people and I was like, they're going the wrong way. Was I the one who was walking weird? And then your mind goes, no, I wasn't. I just happened to run into several people who were off. And I, you know, I do see that on a, you know, I, I do look at that and I'm like, yeah, something's off today and I need to be hyper vigilant. Maybe there's something contagious. Like somebody was driving and they ran into somebody who was driving the wrong way and it scrambled their brain. So now when they went to the strip mall, they drove the wrong way. To, you know what I mean? It's like it, there's almost something contagious when something is off. But there's no rationale. There's no measurable way that you can prove that. You just encounter a few examples of it in a short enough amount of time and your brain is just like something's going on. 
But that tells you something that we try to find a rationale. We try to find conspiracy. And sometimes that's because the alternative is um, being upset. Or the alternative is just taking responsibility. You know, it, you know, sometimes that happens when we're very disappointed. If something disappoints us or upsets us, that gives us even more motivation to find a rationale. If something bothers us. I mean, it bothered me that several people in a row decided not to pay me on eBay. It bothered me. Why wouldn't that bother you? But because it bothered me, I had to find an explanation for it, which there is none. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's good when you have no explanation, because when you can find an explanation, it's so attractive to use that explanation, even when you have no evidence that that is the explanation. You know, here we are back to race, but... I mean, it turns out if you even look at anything, if you look at anything as an American citizen, and it's not just America, but if as an American citizen, if you look at anything that's going on, there will be a conversation about race. And just yesterday, it came out that a, a head coach who was recently fired in the NFL is suing the NFL for racial discrimination. He's a black coach. And he's suing the NFL because he was very disappointed and upset. He was interviewed for a new head coaching job. And the, the NFL has a rule. It's been around for a while. It's been around for many years. But obviously, in a post-Colin Kaepernick NFL, things have taken on a new dimension. So the NFL has a rule that they call the Rooney Rule. The Rooney Rule. You ever heard of the Rooney Rule? Silly sounding. But they have the Rooney rule, which means that every time there's a head coach opening, an NFL team is mandated by the rules of the NFL to interview at least one black candidate. There's been a lack of black NFL head coaches, and there used to be a perception, and maybe there are still traces of it, but there used to be prejudice. There used to be a perception that a black man wouldn't make a good head coach. We see people like Mike Tomlin. He's won a Super Bowl. He's a great coach. He's a black man who is a great coach. You know, we know that a black man isn't incapable of being a great head coach, but we still don't see very many of them. And as a result, the NFL has maintained, it's kind of a variation of affirmative action where it doesn't require a team to hire a black head coach. It requires them to interview at least one. The problem with that is that usually teams know who they're going to go after. When a team has a head coach vacancy, they know which guys they're looking into. But because this is a rule, they have to interview at least one black head coach. The black head coaches know that, and that sucks for those guys. It wastes their time. It gets their hopes up. And so that seems to have happened with this former Miami Dolphins coach, where he was interviewed by the New York Giants, I believe it was. I might, I might have that wrong, but I think it was the New York Giants. And basically, he figured out, just through some things people said to him, he figured out that they were just interviewing him because of the Rooney rule. He didn't actually have a chance at the head coach spot. They knew who they wanted. They didn't want this guy. 
I highly doubt that they discriminated against him. There's no evidence, because I, I decided to read about it. I didn't see any evidence that they actively discriminated against this coach because he was black. They did interview him because he was black, because they're required by law, basically. Teams are required by the law of the NFL. They don't have a choice. They have to interview a black candidate, but they have to go through the motions of that. Even if they're not interested in, in any black coaches just because they're not, they have to interview one. And it sucks for that guy. I feel for that guy. He had his time wasted. He was disappointed. He has a reason to be upset. The Rooney rule basically forced this team to pretend they were interested in him when they weren't. But he's suing them for racial discrimination because, you know, he wanted to find a conspiracy in that. And there is a history of prejudice. An explanation was available to him even though there wasn't evidence that he was discriminated against, you know, an explanation for why they didn't hire him was available to him, which is that, oh, they don't want a black head coach. And while there is a history of prejudice in that regard, you know, it's difficult for me to imagine a modern NFL team would say, huh, we think this guy is going to help us win, but we're not going to hire him because he's black. You know, maybe there's traces of that, but we can see with NFL quarterbacks today where there used to be a similar perception about NFL quarterbacks where it was black men don't make good quarterbacks. That used to be a commonly held belief, but we can see what's, you know, look at the NFL today where there's a lot of black quarterbacks, a lot of franchise quarterbacks. There's no lack of black NFL quarterbacks today. So we can see that prejudice that it might, there might still be traces of it, but the proof is that there are a lot of black quarterbacks today. But an explanation was available, which is that this team didn't want to hire me because I'm black. But let's say that there are owners. Let's say there are NFL franchises who are like, don't hire a black guy. They still have to go through the motions of interviewing one because that's the rule. So it doesn't really make sense that that's even a rule. Because if a team is so prejudiced in 2022 that they simply refuse to hire a black head coach because he's black, there's no requirement that they hire him. An extremely prejudiced owner who refuses to have a black head coach, he's going to follow the Rooney rule and interview a black coach and then just not hire him. There's nothing requiring that he hire him. It's not like affirmative action where you have to meet a quota. You just have to go through the motions. And getting away from race, I was thinking about this because I was like, Baldman, you know, as a man who will eventually be bald, as a baldingman, I'm a baldingman, but as a baldman, it's well known that, as a baldingman, it's well known that baldmen have a more difficult time attracting women. Sure, plenty of bald guys find women. But it's just a simple fact that it's more difficult to find a woman if you don't have a rooster shock of hair. What we call a rooster shock, a Rorschach. Rooster shock? Rorschach. Turns out hair is kind of a Rorschach test. 
You can tell a lot about a, a person by how they feel about a given haircut. You could show somebody a silhouette of somebody's hair, and that's pretty much a Rorschach test. Speaking for myself, I feel all kinds of things based on someone's haircut. Hair is a Rorschach test. But I'm talking about rooster shocks. Somebody who has a nice head of hair that looks good and it sticks up like a rooster. That guy's going to have an advantage when it comes to dating. And a guy who has no hair, who can't grow hair anymore, he's going to have a disadvantage. As a balding man, doesn't make me feel bad. If you live long enough to lose your hair, you're blessed. There's a lot of people who die before they even know if they're going to go bald. If you live long enough to go bald, you know, you're playing with the house's money, I feel. But, uh, you know, I think you could look at something like Tinder, or as I call it, Tendril, where who knows what the data says, but I'm sure the numbers would back me up when it would show that men who are bald probably get fewer swipe rights on Tendril. Women probably swipe right less for bald men, bald men, than they do other men. What if we put in a measure to counteract that? What if there was a, a, a Rooney rule on Tinder where for every five men that a woman swipes right on, she has to swipe right on at least one bald man? Is that going to increase his chances? If a woman simply refuses to if a woman just is simply unattracted to bald men, which is every woman's right, what difference is that going to make? Maybe in some exceptional examples, a woman who thinks she's not attracted to bald men will be like, well, I have to match with a guy, and maybe she's going to find out that she actually loves this guy. Maybe she's going to find out that she loves bald men. Every once in a while, you'll come across one of those those women who like broadcasts it, I love Baldman. I love Baldman. You know, which the fact that a woman even has to make that point is funny. You know, it's like men who are like, I love redheads. I'm just one of those guys who loves redheads. It's like, it's always funny when someone broadcasts that kind of thing. But still, you know, the reason why there's that, that occasional woman who broadcasts that she just loves bald men is because that's not n the norm. It's not that women refuse to date bald men altogether. It's just that that's not someone's first preference. Like if you asked a woman, like, do you prefer a man with hair or not? They'd probably say hair. It's just a fact. But if you required that woman to swipe right on an occasional bald man, it's probably not going to make things that much better for the average bald man. She matches with a guy, but she's not going to actually pursue him. She's just going through the motions. It's the Rooney rule. But that's actually going to create more resentment. There's going to be more resentment in that. Because now, it's like, at least right now, even though it might be more difficult for a bald man on Tinder, at least right now, when he does match with somebody, he knows that there's probably a genuine interest. Whereas if they instituted a Rooney rule... He's going to match with a woman, but he's not going to know if he's just matching with her because she was required to do that. And when the woman actually shows no real interest in him and wastes his time, he's going to be resentful. He's going to be disappointed. He's going to feel lied to. And so I think that's what this coach in the NFL was going through. 
where it's like they were required to interview him because he's black and he knows that. They weren't actually interested in him. And that probably had nothing to do with his race. But because he knows they had to interview him because he was black, but they had no interest. It's like being black played a role in that interaction. It might not have been the reason they didn't hire him, but it's like it played a role in them going through the motions and basically lying to him. But they were lying to him so that the NFL doesn't find them or sanction them for not hiring a black or for not interviewing a black candidate. So it's just a mess. That's just a mess. And it creates more resentment. Because, I mean, think about being a black head coach where you're being interviewed by a team and you don't know if they actually have any interest in you or if they're just trying to meet this requirement. And the requirement is there because there is a history of prejudice. But do you get around that prejudice by leading black coaches on? By being like, oh, we're interested in you. But that coach doesn't actually know. And when he's disappointed, when he's upset, he's going to try to find a rationale for it. Oh, they didn't hire me because I'm black. When we're disappointed, we go there with it. I mean, I know somebody, somebody I love, a woman who was trying to get a promotion at work, like an opening a uh, like an administrative position was open at her job and she was one of the top two candidates like when it came down between her and a man and this is a very progressive workplace everybody there is progressive there's women in in administrative positions at this workplace but it came down between this woman I know and a man, and she went through a series of interviews. It really came down to the wire, and they had to decide between her and this man. They chose the man. Well, her explanation for why that happened is because it's a good old boys club, and it was a misogynistic decision that they chose the man because they didn't feel like a woman was capable I did, you know, I don't know what actually happened. And I love this person, so I didn't say this to them. But I know that she was very disappointed. I know that she was very upset. I know that she got her hopes up. And I think she was trying to find an explanation, a rationale for why they chose somebody else. And they could have chosen him for any number of reasons. Maybe it was misogynistic. Because once again, there's a history where men used to be the only ones that worked. There used to be a perception, and there are still traces of this, that only men are capable of having leadership roles, administrative roles. So it's not like there's no history there. But uh, I just didn't, I don't know how she could have known that that man was chosen because those responsible for doing the hiring were just so misogynistic at a place that's largely progressive that has women in leadership roles. I just, I just didn't see where the evidence was. And I didn't say anything because I'm not an asshole. And I understand people just have to come up with their rationale and excuses. But my opinion was that she found a conspiracy. She, the only way to really cope with her disappointment 
was to find a conspiracy. And we live in a society, and maybe every society has its own form of this. I'm sure it does. This is a human tendency. But uh, we live in a society where that's built in. Just like me being on eBay and being like, there must be some rationale why a bunch of people at the same time suddenly decided not to pay me. I'm looking for the conspiracy. I'm wondering if these random people in different parts of the United States buying very different things from me got together and were like, don't pay him. Don't you know who he is? Don't pay him. Don't pay that guy. Like, my mind went there. Not really. Not, not like I actually considered that. But even the fact that I'm saying that right now, just like I, my mind wanted to find an explanation. And when you're trying to find an explanation for disappointment, or something is bothering you, well, that explanation is a conspiracy. And that doesn't mean that it's wrong. A conspiracy can be real. We have this idea, like the word conspiracy has become associated with something that's false, something that's made up. But a conspiracy is a real thing. It's something people do. They conspire. But often when we believe something is a conspiracy... It's a way to rationalize chaos. It's like Zbigniew Brzezinski said. I always quote this, but history is more the product of chaos than conspiracy. And I believe that. We look back at history and we think that everything was planned. We think that everything was strategized. And there are plans, there are strategies, there are conspiracies, but they're often a reaction to the chaos And sometimes our reaction to chaos, especially the chaos of history, is to be like, oh, that was all designed. It gives us some level of comfort. Even though it's something that upsets us or that's bad, it gives us some level of comfort to say, oh, somebody is in control. Because the alternative, well, it gets back to that incomprehensible. It's like people looking at God and not seeing God as something incomprehensible that we simply are finding our own ways to relate to by being like, it's a guy with a face and a brain. You know, because it's too difficult to understand that incomprehensible element of God. That wholeness, that totality that permeates everything. And so we do that with just, just about everything, where the incomprehensible is often the worst thing of all to us. It's the scariest thing of all. We can't accept it. We don't know how to accept it. So we see conspiracy. We see design. And you can see where reactionary conservatives fall into the same habits. You know, there's a new trend where these diversity mandates in hiring, where, you know, for years in academia, minorities are given a relative advantage when applying for college. They want to increase the amount of diversity in academia, so they make it more difficult for white students to get in. It's just a fact. They're doing it now with Asian students in Ivy League schools. 
because of the sheer number of Asian students accepted into Ivy League schools, they're trying to discourage that. Well, guess who doesn't like that? Asians. So if you're an Asian person who applies to an Ivy League school, you have good grades, you're accomplished, and you don't get in, you very well might say, well, they they discriminated against me because I'm Asian. And there's an argument to be made there. If you're a white male applying to colleges and you have great, uh, you, you know, you've done well, you, you were a, an overachiever and you don't get in, it's very easy to play the victim and say, oh, well, because of their diversity quotas, they discriminate against me. We see that in professions now where there's jobs and I've seen these. There's job listings that straight up say, like, you know, we're looking for a woman of color. White males need not apply. You know, maybe not always stated that explicitly, but it is fairly explicit. This exists. This isn't something I'm making up. But what that creates is now if you're a white male applying for a job and they ask you for a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement instead of a cover letter, which we're seeing now too, and you don't get the job even though you're qualified, you very well might come up with this victim mentality. You very well might fall into that conspiracy-oriented thinking to explain your disappointment, which is, they didn't hire me because I'm a white man. And I see reactionary conservative types doing this. I see reactionary conservatives say things like this now, where they're playing the same game I thought they hated. Even though that's going on, even though that happens, even though there are jobs, there's academia, where they are discriminating against white males. But if things don't work out your way, you will default to that explanation, even in the absence of evidence. And you shouldn't do that. Even if it's true, you shouldn't do that. Keep your dignity. If you didn't get a job because you're a white male and a company is trying to make themselves look good by hiring a woman of color, you shouldn't default to the victim mentality. Keep your dignity. The only way through this is dignity. The only way through this, the only way through this madness that we're in is through dignity. You know, it plays into this leveling the playing field discussion. I've seen where opponents of quote-unquote cancel culture, will, when, when somebody on the left, like what happened with Whoopi Goldberg? You know, I invoked her name yesterday, I think it was. I didn't even intend to make that relevant to current events. I was just talking about how she she's famous. It's she. There's a famous quote from her where like she saw Star Trek as a little girl and it was like, Mom, there's a black woman, and she's not a maid. It's a famous quote. It, whenever people talk about representation and entertainment, they always invoke that quote. So I invoked her. I wasn't even trying to comment on current events, which is, you know, she got suspended from The View, the prestigious television show, The View. Because she said that the Holocaust was just white people killing white people. 
which is obviously a way of um obviously that was a way of trivializing it her intention the only reason you would say that is to trivialize it using this very contemporary american view this contemporary narcissism on the subject of race but what she said isn't that crazy and i don't support somebody getting suspended for just some comment like that you know you know it's just it's just a, it's an ignorant comment it shows a level of contemporary narcissism it, it shows you where this twisted conversation has taken us but there's a logic you know there's people out there who would say, and they are saying this, which is like, she deserves it because, oh, you don't like it when one of you gets canceled, huh? There's an argument that I've heard people make, which is because this is going on, it needs to happen equally. Because people are being suspended and fired and coming under public scrutiny for just random things they said that are relatively harmless and because that often leans one way, which it does. When it leans the other way, it's okay because it's leveling the playing field. I understand that argument and there's an argument to be made there. But again, it's like I don't, I, I don't like the entire game. I hate the entire game that's being played. What's funny about Whoopi Goldberg, though, is like her name is Goldberg. And that's just a name that she adopted. And she said this because she feels Jewish or she knows deep down she's Jewish. But they've done some sort of ancestral research and found that there's no evidence she's Jewish at all. So she just it's funny that she made this comment basically trivializing the Holocaust as white people killing white people. As if that makes any difference. And she has this Jewish name, and she's not even Jewish. It's just kind of funny. I don't know. Imagine telling proto-German tribes that same idea. Like, imagine saying that about these proto-German tribes. You go back in time, and you tell the Visigoths and Ostrogoths being like, hey, you're all Germans. In, in, a, in, a, in a thousand years, you'll all just be German citizens. It's just funny when we apply our current logic to history. Hey, you're all white people. Yeah, you, you might you, you might be uh, proto-German tribes, but you're all just Germans to me. You're all just white people to me. It's just funny when we apply our contemporary narcissism to history, which we do all the time. Just like we want God to look like us. Just like we want Jesus to look like us. Like, we expect history to conform to our current understanding. We want it to be relatable to us. And so, of course, people are going to do that. Of course, Whoopi Goldberg is going to see white people just as, oh, it's just white people killing white people to me. But I nothing else to say about that. Nothing else to say about that. But that's part of the 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 incomprehensibility of history, the chaos of history. The idea that it doesn't conform to our current worldview is almost too much to bear. It's almost too much. So our only way of understanding history is to apply our contemporary narcissism to it. Oh, it must have worked the same way 
I believe the world works now. And that's what's so funny about the right side of history is it's like, oh, people in the future are going to realize that we were right because they're going to understand the world in the exact same way we do. Contemporary narcissism. It applies to history. It applies to the future. We try to apply our own framework to everything. We expect... We relate to those things, but we in turn expect them to relate to us. Meanwhile, we couldn't be more wrong. But it's because the incomprehensible is terrifying. Even believing that there is some deliberate effort to conspire against us is more attractive than the incomprehensible. We want an explanation. And as I've said time and time again, you know, there's something, there's kind of this capacity for dishonesty built into explanations opposed to descriptions. I always say, why explain when you can describe? Because a description in theory is simply stating what you see. It's stating the evidence. An explanation takes it to another level. Now you're saying why it is how it happened. And we, as human beings, we explain. And we, as human beings, are fallen. So our explanations are often self-serving or involve some level of dishonesty. It's difficult for us to simply describe something as it is. Because simply describing leaves a lot of loose ends. We like to tie things up. We like to tie things together. I can't just cope with my disappointment on its own. I can't just, I can't simply be disappointed that I didn't get the job. They didn't hire me because I'm a woman. They didn't hire me because I'm black. They didn't hire me because I'm a white male. We'd rather have that explanation than just deal with disappointment. And that does a disservice to the fight against prejudice. Because there is prejudice. So there's no simple answer. But uh, and, and the measures we put in place to fight prejudice, the Rooney Rule can easily create more resentment. And this is something you see, you know, I mentioned a little while back how, you know, I mean, it's one of the worst terms, one of the worst modern terms is mansplaining. And I was talking about how, I was talking recently about how I believe that men talk down to women. I believe that men over-explain things to women, even subjects that a woman knows something about. I believe that men do that. The reason I believe that is because men do that to other men. The issue isn't that men, quote-unquote, mansplain to women. The issue is that that's a big part of how men communicate. It's not that when men talk to each other, they come from a point of view of, hey, we're all brothers with penises. We're all brothers with dickies. We all got dickies. So I'm going to treat you with respect as a peer. 
Men talk down to each other all the frickin' time. Men go to war. Men kill each other. Men talk to each other like the other person's an idiot. I believe men do that to women, too. But a large part of mansplaining is that's just how men talk. And they talk to each other that way. And that's why men hate each other. Men hate each other. To the point where we will kill that other person. We will go to war with that other person. And men don't all just approach each other as, hey, we're all brothers. We're all in this secret society of the dicky. No, men are constantly explaining things to each other that the other guy doesn't want to hear. And friendship means basically tolerating that. Like, as a man, who your friends are, who your male friends are, are often people where you can simply tolerate the fact that that person will say a bunch of shit you don't want to hear half the time. You can handle them wanting to be right. You can handle them wanting to be an authority on certain subjects. That's basically what male friendship is. You can tolerate that, that, that what that is. But, you know, and, and there are, like I said, there are examples where men talk down to women, maybe because they're women. I believe that. I know that happens. But the idea that that's exclusive to the relationship between men and women, the idea that that's not something men simply do all the time. So if you want to pinpoint the issue, it's men talk a certain way. They do it to women. They do it to each other. You know, and it used to be where men wouldn't even explain things to women at all. Like my mom talked about, you know, having boyfriends in the 60s and they would just be, you know, she would ask about something and they'd be, be like, oh, you wouldn't understand. The fact that men are mansplaining at all is probably a sign that things have moved forward a little bit. I know someone would hate to hear that. But the fact that men are even trying to engage a woman in conversation and, and explain an idea at all might be a sign of progress. Because one, men do that to other men. And two, there's a history of men just saying to women, like, oh, this is something you simply wouldn't understand at all, so I'm not even going to talk about it. That's something men used to do far more often. I don't even see you as a peer. So the fact that men are explaining things to anybody is a sign that they see them as a peer of some kind. Oh, you're just a woman. You wouldn't understand. Opposed to, well, this is how it works because of blah, 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 blah. You know, there's a difference between those things. And, um, you know, I do believe there's, a, there's a, an interaction that takes place between men and women where men are particularly patronizing or condescending or they treat a woman a certain way because she's a woman. But do you know that? When a man, if, if you're a woman and a man talks a certain way to you that you don't like, do you know whether or not he talks that way to other men? Because this is something that's missing from the whole man-woman conversation, which is there's a, there are a lot of assumptions about the way men interact when they're just among other men. And the second there's one woman in a room 
men start acting differently. If you've ever been at a party where it's all men, their behavior is going to change substantially if a woman is there. Not just because everybody's trying to get laid, dude. Not just because every guy is suddenly, I mean, that will change things for sure. Men start competing. They start trying to outdo each other. They start trying to impress the girl. But even if that's not at play, they're simply going to act a little bit differently. Like you can be hanging out with your best friend in the world. You're totally comfortable around each other. But if one of your girlfriends is there, the dynamic changes. You talk differently. Could be the coolest girl in the world. There's something that's going to be a little bit different. Just a little bit. So women never actually see men in their own element. And they make a lot of assumptions about what that's like. And, you know, while there are examples, I'm sure, of men talking to women in a way that sucks, sucks for for them. They don't actually know how that man talks to other men. And there's a good chance he does do that to other men because I can tell you they do it to me and I probably do it to them. But there's a need to find an explanation or some sort of conspiracy, like someone's just a blowhard. Because some human beings are blowhards. But if a blowhard talks to a woman, she has the option of saying, oh, this is part of a pattern. This is mansplaining. Because somebody put that idea into her head. They put that catchphrase into her head. They can now find that in different places. And I've had female friends who have I've had conversations with them where they'll be like, oh, at work today, this guy came in and and he was just totally mansplaining to me. And they'll say what he said. And I'm just thinking, it doesn't sound like that's what it was. And I don't say anything. Just like that person I love who, who, who felt that they didn't get a certain promotion because they're a woman and they gave it to a man because he's a man. I didn't hear anything that proved that. I didn't hear anything that even gave it much indication at all. I I didn't hear anything that indicated that at all. But I didn't say anything because if you oppose that idea, you're now part of the problem. You're now a misogynist. So if if you push back, it's just not worth it. If you care about that person, it's not worth it. You just have to let them vent. You have to let them see the conspiracy. Because it's not really worth trying to untangle that mess because it is such a mess. But I've had that happen where female friends have been like, oh, this guy was totally mansplaining to me. And they'll say what he said. And I'm just like, that's just how men talk. That's how men talk to me. That's how men talk to each other. Men are arguing with each other all the time. Men are constantly in this competition. Men are constantly trying to outdo each other verbally. They're constantly trying to prove something. So I hear that and I'm like, I don't think that's what you think it is. But I don't say anything. But this is something I've become aware of, though. It's like where it's easier just to say this guy's not just a blowhard talking the way many men talk to each other, to women, to anybody. It's easier to say, oh, no, he was doing that. He was, he was being patronizing. 
he was trying to tell me how something worked because he thinks that I'm a woman who doesn't understand things. Men go around constantly telling each other how things work. Constantly. My friends do it to me. I do it to them. Like I said, male friendship is often just being able to tolerate that about each other. And, uh, but there's a, there's a need to kind of see it as part of a pattern. There's a need to find that explanation. You know, we have that built into us. And as we get more information, it doesn't seem to make things better. The more information that human beings have about what human beings are, and the different types of behavior, the different types of ideas we have. It just gives us that that many more resources. It, it gives us that many more options for finding patterns, I guess. I'm trying to find my words here. But, you know, it gives us that many more options to find explanations. When the reality is there's so much chaos, there's so much that's just completely incomprehensible. And that doesn't mean that there aren't conspiracies. That doesn't mean that there, you know, that there isn't something. That there aren't prejudices. It doesn't mean we shouldn't correct each other. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to find a better way to live. But we shouldn't be afraid, uh, afraid of that incomprehensible element either. You know, if nothing else, you can just say, oh, the reason things suck is because it's a cosmic roadblock. The reason I hit four red lights in a row, the reason somebody was driving the wrong way down the street, the reason why I had to wait in line today for way too long, the reason why people on eBay aren't paying me this week is there's a cosmic roadblock. If you have to find some explanation for something, I don't think the spiritual is the wrong place to look. I think it's the right place to look if you have to. If you can cope with that without getting into the cosmos, that's fine. But the fact that my brain goes there, that my brain goes, oh, okay, there's no rational explanation for why this is happening in the material world. There's no scientific, measurable way of understanding why things just suck. But hey, maybe there's something incomprehensible going on. You know, my mind goes there. But my mind also goes there when it comes to the good. When good things happen... First of all, I have to remember that. Oh, hey, a few people didn't pay me on eBay. Well, some other people did. Some other people were really cool. Your negativity bias gets in your way. To get biblical, it's like the shepherd with a hundred sheep and one of them wanders up into the mountains and he chases that one. Meanwhile, he has 99 sheep who are just hanging out doing what sheep are supposed to do. But of course, he's going to go for the one who's lost. That's the one he notices. Comedians talk about this. Comedians will say that they have an entire audience of people laughing, and they'll notice that one face who isn't laughing. We do that. 
We notice that one thing that's going wrong. We notice that one person who isn't respecting us. That one interaction that's bad. We notice the red lights. Most of the time you don't even notice the green lights. And even if you notice them while you're driving through them, you don't remember them. You remember when you hit four red lights in a row. You don't remember an entire day of nothing but green lights because you were just able to move. When things go smoothly, you don't have to think about them. That's what's great about things going smoothly. They don't distract you. But you should remember that things often do go smoothly. You should remember that things are often okay. And there's no conspiracy why that's happening either. We don't try to find explanations for why things work. Yes, sometimes things work because you put thought into it. You put consideration into it. You took responsibility. Sometimes things also just work because they're working. Sometimes everything just lines up perfectly. Sometimes your life just, you're going with the grain. Not even because of anything you did. Things are just going smoothly. But when things are going smoothly, we don't really try to find an explanation for it. We don't, try and, we don't try to find that conspiracy that makes things work. Because we notice it when they don't work. We notice it when we're going against the grain. And it's hard to accept that sometimes shitty things happen just because shitty things happen. Frustrating things happen just because they happen. Disappointment happens just because it happens. But we have you know, this tendency to not do that when things go well. The incomprehensible is a lot more attractive to us when things are fine. Like we can accept that there's no explanation, there's no rationale for good things. Because we can accept good things. We don't have to think about good things. We simply feel them. But you should catch yourself. Catch yourself when you find yourself getting into that conspiracy-oriented thinking, trying to find explanations where there might not be one. And if you do have to find one, think of it in the broadest possible terms. You know, think of it as, okay, maybe something larger is going on that I can't see. And you don't have to believe in God to think that way. Because even God is incomprehensible. But I still feel that you don't have to be a spiritual person to understand there's something incomprehensible about you. And if there's something incomprehensible about you, well, you know that applies down the board to everything. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave 
this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. So take.